Nobody told me. In this podcast, what I want to focus on is people versus profit. And what do I mean by that? In looking at situations as far as people's health care, senior care, how we handle our prison system and our adolescent detention facilities, and how we've turned them into profit-making endeavors. And the problems I have with that. And that's what I want to talk about on this podcast. It's always kind of bothered me about this idea of making profit at the expense of people's, whether it's physical or mental health, or situations where they've gotten themselves into problems. How we make that a profitable business, just to me, lacks a sense of humanity. And what got me thinking about this was kind of flicking around the channels and NBC did a special on youth facility. In particular, they focus on Sequel Youth and Family Services, which was a for-profit company that ran multiple facilities. For over two years, Kate Snow has reported on allegations of abuse at group homes for children run by Sequel Youth and Family Services. Now for the first time, a former employee speaks out about one teen's death. And we need to caution you, some of the video is disturbing. The video was shocking. 16-year-old Cornelius Frederick died days after being restrained on the floor of the cafeteria at Lakeside Academy in Kalamazoo, Michigan, a group youth home run by Sequel Youth and Family Services. We have a student that he was in a restraint and now he's unresponsive. If you had asked majority of our staff six months prior, we probably could have told you this was going to happen. Former Sequel employee Megan Fulkerson is speaking publicly for the first time. She was Cornelius's case manager and says aggressive restraints at Lakeside were common. In a statement, Sequel called Cornelius's death senseless and tragic and said the actions taken by the staff members in that video do not adhere to the Sequel and Lakeside Academy policies and procedures. What do you think of that? On paper, it doesn't, but the culture and the core of sequel um, would speak differently. In 2019, Fulkerson says Lakeside Academy grew more violent after it started accepting more tougher kids from California because some California counties paid more than other states. Sequel would make more money on kids from California. Yes, even if admissions or others had red flags, um, management base is like, no, we're taking them. Um, Why? came down to money. It was anything to make California happy. Will White worked with Cornelius at a different youth home. He wanted to be loved for the most part. And that came from, you know, him not having what he felt like he needed in the home. 
After Cornelius' death, Michigan shut Lakeside down, and several states are pulling kids from Sequel facilities. I don't think Sequel should be running any youth facilities. But Sequel says the overwhelming majority of state child-serving agencies in the United States continue to find our services to be essential and operating at or exceeding their highest standards. And Sequel Executive Marianne Birmingham defends the company. Sequel is an agency, you know, a company composed of thousands of people who've committed their lives to helping, you know, some of our most underserved kids. A company that continues to operate in 19 states. Kate Snow, NBC News, Detroit. I never really liked this idea of making profits off the expense of kids. And it got me thinking about a situation that I remember reading in the paper 10 years ago that took place in Pennsylvania. In that case, a judge, a Pennsylvania judge, was sentenced to 28 years in prison in connection to bribery, where he took over a million dollars in bribes from developers of a juvenile detention center to steer kids their way. Pennsylvania Supreme Court wound up tossing about 4,000 cases that this judge issued between 2003 and 2008, saying that basically they violated, he violated their constitutional rights. So it always worries me when there is a profit motive behind things like taking care of troubled kids. Because then it gets to thinking, okay, if it's a profit-driven business and you have a decision to make, are you going to make that decision based on what the well-being of the child is or are you going to base it on how much profit you're going to make? For example, if I'm going to choose a situation, what are the living circumstances of these kids going to be? Am I going to give them comfortable facilities with maybe a decent bed? Or am I going to try to shortchange that and try to find the cheapest thing I can get? That way it doesn't impede my profits. Or when I think of staffing a facility, do I understaff and make people do more work for less money? And that way it doesn't cut into my profits. And this whole profit motive was abundantly clear during the Trump administration with migrant children and the profit-making companies that supplied housing facilities for these migrant children. For example, uh, GEO Group and Core Civic received multi-million dollar contracts from DHS to run detention facilities. From 2017 to 2019, they had signed over $450 million worth of contracts. That is, the DHS had done this to GEO Group and $280 million to Coors Civic. And of course, the more people that were locked up, the more profit that they made. So as in the situation back in 2011 with the judge in Pennsylvania steering people or kids towards these facilities, the more the government steered these migrants to these detention facilities, the more profitable it became for these companies. And once again, you have to think of when I saw during this whole situation, the detention facilities and the conditions that the, particularly the children lived under, it's easy to see that profits were more important than providing a safe environment in which these children could live in. So the question becomes, what's more important, profit or the well-being of children in this country? So the other area of concern I have is this big shift that we've been making over the past years, particularly 
during the previous administration of moving towards privatization of prisons in this country. The United States has the world's largest private prison population. No surprise. From 2000 to 2016, the number of people housed in private prisons increased five times faster than the total prison population. And to go along with that, as I mentioned before about immigration, facilities that were run privately increased during that time period by 442%. And also during that time, the number of people incarcerated in private prison facilities increased 47%, while the overall prison population increased by 9%. And if you don't think it's a very profitable business to get into, just think about this, that the Corrections Corporation of America and GEO Group, who are the two largest private prison companies, since 1989 has funneled more than $10 million directly to state legislatures in order to get candidates that support their for-profit making business. So you figure if they spent that much on lobbying, how much money it is for them to make. And of course, the more prisoners that are incarcerated, the more profit they make. And again, I bring back the idea of, okay, if it's for-profit, what about these facilities and how they're managed, what kind of living conditions there are, and what the staffing is like at these facilities? Because remember, everything that's being done, whether it's the food that's supplied, whether it's the living conditions, or the number of staff, the more better treatment you give of these incarcerated people, the less profit you're going to make. So when it comes to a decision over these things, such as the food that you give them, the bedding, for example, or the number of staffing that you provide for these facilities, the more you give them, the less profit you're going to make. So when it comes to the bottom line, as far as decisions are concerned, which way do you think they're going to go? Again, you have to think about what's more important, the well-being of people or making a profit. Which brings me to another situation, profit-making business of senior health care, particularly senior health care facilities. Last month I was watching Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, and some people will think right away, oh no, here we go. One of these crazy liberals that put out information that is, you know, once again, fake news. But if you haven't had a chance to watch it, you should really watch it because it really points out the problems with long care facilities in particular when it comes to seniors. Nursing homes and long-term care in general are something that we tend to try to avoid thinking about. But the truth is, whether due to old age or disability, many of us do or will require help with daily living. The number of Americans 65 and older is projected to nearly double over the next 40 years. And one study estimated over two thirds of Americans who reach 65 will need long term care at some point in their lives. And the good news is for the rich, there are plenty of options. There are multiple upscale retirement communities where residents can transition if needed into full time nursing care. So if you're wealthy, shouldn't be a problem. But what about the rest of us that don't have that wealth? What happens to us? But the fact is, most of us aren't ending up in that place. In fact, the vast majority of people receive long-term care at home, and around 80% of that care is provided by unpaid caregivers, often family members, who want to keep their loved ones out of institutional care, like this wife and daughter. Cheryl and Kristen are among the 42 million Americans caring for loved ones at home. 
and the tasks they perform have become increasingly complex. When we have to flush his pick line or clean his peg tube or take his blood glucose or his blood pressure, you know, none of us went to school for that. I mean, we're not educated that way. I don't feel like I had enough training at all for this. We've kind of learned by trial and error. So it makes me wonder how many people find themselves in such a bad situation in that they really want to care for their family members but just don't have the training or the know-how or the money to provide adequate health care for those that they love. And for those in long-term care facilities, I think with the COVID situation that we've experienced over the past year, you really see the dire situation that occurs in these facilities. One resident here says her calls for help were ignored because there wasn't enough staff to respond. I'm screaming, get me out of here, get me out of here, get me out of this thing. I was screaming at them. I was in terrible pain and they didn't come for me. Penny Shaw was in pain as she lay helpless in her bed at Braintree Manor Nursing Home in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. She became so desperate, she even called Braintree police for help. I can't lay in bed for hours and hours, you know, in pain like that. And as much as we want to think, oh, these are just exaggerated stories, the sad part of this is that it happens more often than we want to believe. Nursing homes are medical facilities, overseen by registered nurses and largely staffed by low-paid nursing assistants. And there have long been issues with nursing home care. A GAO report covering a five-year period before the pandemic found that 82% of homes had been cited for infection prevention and control deficiencies, and about half had persistent problems that have been cited across multiple years. And a big reason for that may be because understaffing is a huge problem, with employees often tasked with taking care of way too many residents, as these nursing assistants pointed out just last year. They're not being showered. People falling out of bed. The men aren't being shaved. People falling to where they fell out of their wheelchairs. What if they need changed? They might get it one time. A day? A day. We have 22 residents apiece most days. That's for one person to wash, dress, get up, two meals. and they're being neglected because you can't get to everybody. I told the administrator, I'm embarrassed of my work, my work process because I can't do what I was trained to do on how to take care of these residents. And if we get into how these for-profit companies utilize the system to be even more profitable, it kind of gets you sick to your stomach. And nursing assistants aren't just overworked, they are really underpaid. The median national salary for that job is barely $30,000 a year. And one reason is that nearly 70% of nursing homes are now for-profit institutions. And there is a lot of profit for them to make because they don't pay staff much, but they charge you a lot. The average per person cost for a private room is $100,000 per year. And if you're thinking, well, yeah, that is expensive, but doesn't a Medicare program that I've paid into all my life cover that? Well, no, it doesn't. Medicare only fully covers the first 20 days of nursing home care after an eligible hospital visit, then partially pays for up to 100 days. But after that, you are on the hook for all costs. The only other way to access taxpayer help to live in a nursing home is to almost completely impoverish yourself, to basically spend your way down to the point that you qualify for Medicaid, the government program for the poor, which crucially reimburses nursing homes at less than half the average daily rate paid by Medicare. And while you would like to think that nursing homes would treat all patients the same, whether they're on Medicare 
or Medicaid, the truth is you might get two very different experiences. Because if you're on Medicare, you could wind up getting too much attention. Just listen to an assistant manager at one nursing home chain describe how Medicare patients there were treated. What percentage of the therapy that you were being told to administer do you think was not necessary? I would say probably as time went on, about 40%. 40% of the work that you were doing was not reasonable and not necessary under Medicare guidelines. At another facility, the entire rehab staff signed a letter to their boss. It reads, we've been encouraged to maximize reimbursement even when clinically inappropriate. So when you get profit involved in any of these situations, you find that those that get into the business of making profit off the backs of people often do so in a way that isn't always in the best interest of the people that they're supposed to serve. So my question is, where's the humanity in all this? How long are we going to continue to allow these for-profit businesses? Aren't there other ways people can make money besides off the expense of people's care? And one final point I'll make is with this whole infrastructure bill, when they talk about providing money for senior care, you get these Republicans that get high on their horse that, well, that's not really traditional infrastructure. It's not a bridge or a highway or anything like that. But don't they see how all of this is connected? It's about taking care of our society. And that doesn't matter whether it's a physical structure such as a bridge or taking care of people. Again, I ask, where is the humanity in all of this? Are we going to just simply ignore the situations that we have? And how often are we going to allow these for-profit companies to treat people the way they do? We're better than this and people deserve better treatment. Well, I hope people will think about that and maybe wonder where we go from here as far as how we take care of people. And maybe think about, do we really need to make everything profit-driven in our society? Or are there things that are exception to that rule of capitalism? Something to think about, and until next time, take care.
When you see me fly away without you, shadow on the things you know, feathers fall around you and show you the way to go. It's over. It's over.